Also, on your sheets, on your seats around you, if you haven't got notes this morning, you really, really, really are going to need them. So don't be afraid to get up, walk around, and you should have two sheets. You really are going to need them. So just move around and, and grab one wherever you see one. Praise God. And keep a hold of that. And if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, and have Genesis chapter 6 open before you. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1. If you just have that open on your lap and get a hold of some notes, then we'll pray. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Just, just bow your heads, close your eyes one moment. Lord, as today's topic is, is difficult and really uh, academic in so many ways, I pray you will sharpen our intellect, sharpen our abilities to receive and to understand. And I pray you would take these truths, these historical truths, God, these spiritual truths, and you will not just educate us, but transform us and make us wise children of God, wise in this world. Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We pray and we ask you, Holy Spirit, come and be our teacher this morning. Come and guide us. Come and lead us. Come and edify us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned last week, we're going to start a new series today, which will take us a considerable time, but at least we can make a start. I want to have a, a look at an overview of the whole Bible. Maybe we can start and it could take us three, four years. It, it doesn't matter. The important thing is starting. Don't be afraid by the, the notes you've got on your seat. I know they're a bit scary. Um, just look up a moment. The Bible is a book like no other. Would you agree? Right? But you know what? I have never found a problem with Christians with that point. The Bible is a book like no other. Do you know what the problem is? We don't understand that the Bible is also a book like any other. It's a book like no other. Amen. But I think we forget that it is also a book just like any other. I mean, you would not go into Waterstone's bookshop and pick up a novel and open it in the middle and start reading and expect to understand. You wouldn't do that. There's no other book that actually gets treated like this one with the presumptions and assumptions to which we come to it. When I say it's a, it's a book, it is a book. And because of that, in order to understand really any part of it holistically, fully, you actually need to start at the beginning and read the thing all the way through. And many Christians, don't put your hands up, but many Christians have never even done that. Not only should we do it once or twice, but it should be a life cycle, a constant life cycle. It's packed full. This is given to you so that you can see the mistakes that these people made, and then you would not have to go through the same problems. Okay? We carry it with us, folks. But maybe it makes us, you know, feel comfortable. Amen. Fine. No problem. But it's the unpacking of this power pack right here. It's the unpacking of it, the releasing of it for everything that it contains. 
I want to take a look at the big picture because for me, that, that is, the, is, well, it was a primary problem for me. When I got saved, I went to Bible college. I was sitting there and listening, and I remember getting very frustrated very quickly with the nature of the classes and the education. And you know why? I felt like, you know a jigsaw puzzle? If you were going to do a if I gave you a jigsaw puzzle, what would you look at first? The box. That's what you would look at. You wouldn't throw the box away and then spend your time trying to put the thing together. But I felt like when I went to my first Bible college, not Singapore, to Cardiff Uni, I felt that they started by giving me individual pieces. And I I don't know what to do with it. It's, It's not relevant to anything. I don't know where to put it. I don't know where I'm going. And that really frustrated me. And that's actually where these notes came from. I developed these myself after I finished Bible college. I took a year out. And sorry, man, that I am. I, I, I actually stayed at, at, at home for a year. And I went through the whole thing myself from start to finish. And by the time, by the time I'd finished, I'd written 26 volumes of notes and construction on every in every, every major character, every major doctrine, because I didn't understand. And I, I wasn't getting the help that I thought I needed. I said, okay, I'll go and do it myself then. And that's where that came from. And you suddenly, you see, folks, for example, why should we look at this? Why should you take Sunday after Sunday, and we won't do it consistently for two or three years, but we'll do it on and off. But why should you Take Sunday after Sunday to actually get an overview of the Bible. I'll tell you another reason why, and this is an important one. Let's say you're seeking God for a word, okay? And you sit down and you start praying and you do what many Christians do, boom, and you start reading, okay? And you read, for example, you read that it says, and David sought the Lord for a word, but the the Lord answered him not. Huh? And you look at it, and you think, well, I don't understand it. And you see, week after week after week after week after week after week, people come to us. "Uh, Pastor, I had a word from the Lord, and I don't understand it. Well, that's because you've opened in two kings. If you actually understood what was going on in one kings, one Samuel, and you would know what that word means. David, that's the fourth time David has sought the Lord. He sought the Lord the previous year. He sought the Lord, and he didn't obey the Lord. And God did speak on the previous four occasions. But you've just found the the one, I think God might be saying to you that he's spoken to you before, and you didn't obey him. That's what the Scripture probably means. Do you get my point? You don't, if, if we just open and start reading, you can lose an enormous amount of the application about what God is actually trying to say to me, say to you. And that's a handicap that can, you know, remain with you for the rest of your life. That, you know, God would want to speak and does speak, but our laziness maybe and, and, and lack of understanding of the big picture is a problem. So there's, there's, there's so many reasons why we should study the Scriptures. I want you to understand something before we start. And it's simply this. The Bible is written from God's perspective. Not yours. Okay? Not man's. Okay? 
It's written from God's perspective. What's that on the screen? What is it? Oh, a map of the world? No. No, any other guesses? <laughs> you think it's a map of the world, but it's not actually a map of the world. It's a representation of a map of the world. This map was developed in 1509 by the Germans, believe it or not. <laughs> and it's not accurate. Russia doesn't look that, like that, by the way, nor does America. But this is the map that's on the wall of our church. It is the reason why Germany is in the center is because it was developed by a German. <laughs> so we put Germany right in the middle of it, right? This was the first ever... The world is a globe, you see, and they were struggling to get a, a, a flat representation of it. And the Germans were the first people to do this. So they put it right in the middle. Germany's in the center from their perspective. Now, if God was doing a map in the world, which nation would be at the center? Ireland. That's right. Amen. Only joking. <laughs> Israel would be at the center. Israel would be right, and right in the middle of it. Because everything, listen folks, everything in here relates to Israel. You see, Israel as a piece of land, it's God's tithe of the land. It's His. He owns it. And that's why they've been fighting over it from the beginning of time. It's, it's His land. Okay? And everything, we were in Washington a couple of weeks ago, and I was saying to the American people, they have a lot to be happy about, really. I think one of the most secure countries on earth in the last days is probably going to be the States. And I'll tell you why. Because you don't hear anything about it. Do you know why you don't hear anything about it? Because it's too far away from Israel. That's why. It's too far away. You'll hear about Africa because they're nearer. You'll hear about Russia because they're just above them. You'll hear about the Arabian states. But the Bible, could I have my next map, please? That's the real world map. This is called Peter's perspective map. And these are the real sizes of the nations. Notice how North America is actually much smaller. Notice how Russia is also much smaller, even though it is a huge landmass. And look at the size of Africa. You see? This is a real world map. I just want you to understand that Scripture is written from God's perspective. And God started with Israel, and He will finish there also. And when you understand that, you begin to get maybe a better handle on, on what's happening. So why bother studying the Bible? Because there's a lot you're going to miss if you don't. Right? It's critical, crucial, that you understand the words that God would give you in their context. Amen? Turn to the book of Acts. Sorry, I give you the wrong scripture to open with there. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 6 and verse 1. This is shocking stuff here. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It's the story of Stephen and what happened there just before they killed him. I want you to see what Stephen was like. This is a product of the early church, a product of the New Testament church. And just look what this guy's like. Acts chapter 6, verse 1, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them. 
and give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. The proposal pleased the whole group, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to show you one of, why, in my opinion, why Stephen was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And if, if you just keep on, um, in fact, I'll read from verse 8. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen. And you know the story. They took Stephen aside and they began to, I mean, he, he, he became aware they were going to kill him. Now, Stephen stands up, folks. Listen to this. A man full of the Holy Spirit, full of power, what's he standing on? What's he standing on? Where does that power come from? In, in chapter 7, verse 1, they ask him a question. And in verse 2, it says, To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. And off he goes. Stephen recounts the history of his people, not his family tree as such. The history of, just look at it in your Bible. Just skip forward. You can go page after page after page after page. Stephen knew verbatim the history of the people of God. And I want to tell you folks, I believe without any shadow of a doubt, that's where his faith and power came from. He knew what God had done. He knew the problems and the troubles and everything else of the past. And look at the effect it had upon him. And I think we lack that. And so we lack faith. And so we lack power. There are a multitude of reasons why you should take scriptures maybe more seriously than you do. And me too. Let me just say a few things about the construction of the Bible. And don't be afraid about this. Some people freak out when you start to explain the reality of the Bible you've got in your hand there, you know. We're, start at the beginning. The Jews used to have scrolls, big, massive scrolls. And they would open up the scrolls, they would read the word of the book, and the name of the book would be the first few letters, Genesis. It means in the beginning, because when you open up the book, the first three words were in the beginning. So each book was named after the first line in that book. There are thousands of scrolls. Thousands of scrolls. Most scrolls, even to this very day, have never been translated. They lie in the vaults of the Vatican, mostly, many of them, never been translated. So if you go back before Christ to the time, you know, to, well, any time, through the eras of the prophets, the prophets would produce their scrolls, their manuscripts with what they said. They would be stored in Jerusalem. Isaiah didn't just write one letter. Isaiah wrote many. You can imagine this room, and there wouldn't be enough room in here to contain them. All these scrolls containing the prophecies of many prophets, containing the history of the, 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 the Hebrew people, scroll upon scroll upon scroll, right? Now, what happened was, if you remember, Judas was a zealot. There was a group of people called the zealots. And after Christ had died, they went out and they actually killed a load of Romans. And the Romans' re uh, response to that was to destroy the city of Jerusalem. I I'm going somewhere with this, by the way, because this is where the Old Testament came from. The, the, the Romans' response to that was to destroy the city of Jerusalem. It happened in AD 70. 
Rome, uh, the Roman soldiers surrounded the city and they leveled it. They burned it. They sacked it. But prior to that happening, the Jews knew what was going to happen. They, they had heard the Romans are coming, blah, blah, blah. And do you know what they did? They take the scroll of Isaiah and they put it on somebody's shoulder. Go! They take Ezekiel, not Ezekiel the person, Ezekiel the scroll, and they put it on someone's shoulder and say, you go that way. It's what they call the diaspora, the beginning of the, 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 the shedding out into all the world of the Jewish people. So someone's running down the road, literally with Haggai, Jeremiah. Now, that's fine because they were just about to burn the city. But what that created was a problem. Now you had Jews spread all over the earth, and they had no central government. They had no, there was no book. There was no set number of books. The books were scattered. And the rabbis began to meet and say, this is not working. These guys over here only have Isaiah, and they're building their life on that. That's no good. It's not whole. These guys over here only have Jeremiah. This is not going to work. So in the year 90, okay, they held a council, what they called a rabbinical council. And they gathered together and they began to make a list of the books. It's your Old Testament. I hope you're holding it right now. They began to make a list of the books that they considered to be directly from God, infallible, inerrant, and they had to sift through. You can imagine, scroll upon scroll upon scroll. But in the year around about 90, in a place called Jamnia, the Jewish people, the Jewish rabbis, sealed and finalized what the first half of your Bible, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Okay? Now, the New Testament comes but 400 years later. And this kind of people say, what? <laughs> well, it does, you see. Same thing. The Christians get persecuted. They start to scatter. Paul's writing letters, you know, in some of Paul's, like, 1 Corinthians or whatever. He starts the letter by saying, in my previous letter. So 1 Corinthians is not 1 Corinthians. It must be at least 2 Corinthians, right? There were many scrolls. Same problem. There's manuscripts, born-again Christian manuscripts, our New Testament, plus, 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 scattered all over the globe. The church has the same problem. Not just the books you have here. Tradition says that Pontius Pilate got saved. Don't know if that's true, but that's what they say. Pontius Pilate got saved and he wrote a gospel. We don't have that. Said that Peter wrote a gospel. We don't have that. Philip was supposed to write a gospel. We don't have that. So there were many, many, many scrolls again, same story. And it was around about 380 to the early 390s that the church did the same thing. They held another council. Same problems were happening. You've got some guy over here who only has a little bit of the Bible. Folks, listen. Listen to this. When I was traveling in Bulgaria uh, with Pastor Elia, we, we were up in the mountains in the middle of nowhere. And we found this village, a Roma village, the pastor there didn't have a Bible. Do you know what he had? He had handwritten notebook with a few of the books that he had written down and taken back to the... I couldn't believe my eyes. I thought, goodness me, 2010 or whatever that was. And they're still using partial materials. That's ridiculous. That's crazy. Give that man a Bible. But this is happening even to this very day. But you see, that guy, that pastor, the first thing I thought, you've got problems because he doesn't have the whole story. 
I don't know what he's got in his little notebook there, but it's certainly not going to be complete, is it? Do you see? He needs a Bible. He needs a proper Bible, a whole Bible. So these things still happen today. But that was the problem for the early church. So in around the 380s, 390s, they did exactly the same thing. They all met together, and the, the bishops decided which books were going to be in, and that was a matter of great controversy. But they accepted the Old Testament, obviously. Most of those people had been Jews and got saved. They accepted the Old Testament. And on top of the New Testament, they sealed what we now call the canon around about 382, that happened, and that's where your Bible comes from. Now, people, I shared with you before, a lovely lady sat beside me in Bible college for two years, and in the last days, couple of days, I remember turning to her and saying, well, you know, what do you think of the course? And I never forget what she said to me. She turned to me and she said, I don't know if I believe anymore. Two years in Bible college and you come out like that, not good, huh? I don't know if I believe anymore. And I can understand it, you see, because she looks at the human hand. She looks at human intervention, and she can't cope with that, right? Um, maybe this is a wake-up call for some of you. Maybe you've never understood these things before. God uses people. That's His design. God has always used people. His choice is to come through people. Notice how He doesn't stifle the personalities. They're all so different, very different people. He comes through human beings. But I know that this is the inerrant, infallible Word of God, not for those historical reasons, but because when I open my Bible, what happens? God speaks. God validates His own Word. And Jesus, the books in here, by the way, the Old Testament books, were all referred to in the New Testament, either by Jesus or by the apostles. So they referred to them as authoritative. Okay? Now, there are many things that, 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 that seem strange to us, but the, the greatest concrete proof, I remember the night, the evening I got saved, reading from the book of Romans, and that book, even though it had passed through all of those phases, came up and spoke to me, hit me, this is the Word of God to me. Now, we'll look at that at another time in more detail, in greater detail, but that's the origin of the Bible that you have there. I'm not going to go into these sheets today in any detail. I just want to show you the box, okay? So that in the future weeks, when we look at Scriptures, we look at the, the Old Testament, New Testament books, or we refer to church history, you'll at least have something at home that you can refer back to. This is a brief 25-step overview of the Old Testament. Now, there's a gazillion things that we could say there that I'm not going to get into today. But just to begin with, I'll start at, at point one, and I'm not going to spend too much time on that first sheet. So we open our Bibles in Genesis chapter one, and we read the story of Adam and Eve. And before we go anywhere, I want to point out something, because this is a very common thing. I've had it lots of times when you're on the street, when you talk about God, and people say to you, do you believe in Adam? Do you believe Adam was a man, do you? And they laugh at us. Adam's just a story. You even get people who are saved, you know, who, you know, take the Word of God. I prefer <laughs> to take the Word of God literally, unless I get another way of taking it. Unless it's obviously a story, then I will take it just the way it is. I will believe what I read. So when I see God making Adam, I believe God made Adam. Amen? Right? 
Listen, folks, there was a man called Adam in that garden. And I believe he was made complete. And Genesis, we'll come to Genesis next week. But this is a major point of contention. Jesus referred to Adam as a man. Paul the Apostle in Romans 5, he said this, Because of this one man, Adam's sin, all men have fallen, but because of this one man, Jesus Christ, we can all now be redeemed. So right before, just as we open our Bible, right at the beginning, we get contested. Ha! It's just a story. No, it's not just a story. It's a factual story. It's an historical account of the creation of mankind. Okay? So just right off the, off the bat in number one, just be careful of that. So God made Adam, and you know the story. Society became very corrupt until you get to point two there on the notes. And if you turn to... To Genesis chapter 6, this is what I meant to start with. This has got to be the saddest line in the Bible, the saddest piece of Scripture in the whole Bible. Genesis 6, I think it's heartbreaking. Genesis 6 verse 1, When men began to increase in number on the earth and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married uh, any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards. And when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness was on the, uh, on the earth had become. And look at this. This is the sad bit. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Goodness gracious me. I think that's terrible. Only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Not anger, you notice that? Not anger, pain. His heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind. He doesn't want to do it. He regrets it read Ezekiel. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind with tears in his eyes. I will wipe mankind from the face of the earth, the man that I have created. And you know the story. And God goes on and we have the, the terrible epoch of the flood. Could I have my next slide there, please, Chris? This is Armenia. I've been here right there actually twice in the last year. And this is a majestic, this is Mount Ararat. And this is where the ark, God flooded the, the earth, as you know, and this is where the ark, there's actually two mountains. You can't see the second one. The Bible actually says that the ark came to rest on the Ararat. And in recent time, in recent history, there's been a lot of people going up that hill. It's a beautiful hill. Absolutely, it's, it's breathtaking. Breathtaking. And I can see, if, I mean, if you were God, that's such a place to bring the ark down. The Armenians are a delightful people, joyful, happy. They're considered to be the nosiest people on earth. Did you know that? Yeah. They, you know, you come and pick you up at the airport. Who are you? Where were you born? What was your mother's name? Are you sure? Oh, no, no. Thought, okay, easy on, guys. It's like an interrogation. Anyway, <laughs> this is Armenia. Actually, they stole this mountain. The Turkish uh, people stole it. There was a war about 20 years ago, and it's been annexed, and it's now actually part of Turkey. Um, but Noah landed there. Modern research, they've found many bits and pieces on that mountain. You know, they've found shapes of the ark. They've found, you know, wood on top of the mountain, etc., etc. And you can research that yourself. But that's, that's where it came. Do you know what this is? This is an Old Testament parallel. 
a picture of what's going to happen to the church that's on earth when Christ returns. What's going to happen to the church in the last days? Jesus will come back, take the bride, will rise up in the air whilst the destruction comes on the earth, and then Scripture says we will return with Christ upon the earth. Amen? For a thousand years to rule and reign. That's the ark. You see? This is an Old Testament picture. The floods come. The ark rises up. They're with the Lord. They're kept safe. They, Noah comes back and goes back out upon the earth. All right? So you see, the, the Old Testament has a lot to, to show us and teach us. It's a, a mirror image of what's happening as you live. Right? So point one, Adam and Eve, God makes this man. And as society becomes corrupt, God calls Noah out. But that society becomes corrupt. So he, he, he floods the earth and he's vexed and heartbroken that he had to do it. And then it, it, he, God kind of changes his whole plan. Up, up until this point, God had worked with a whole society. He had worked with Abraham and, uh, sorry, uh, Noah and all his tribe. He had worked with peoples. But there was a change in the plan with Abraham. God felt, that I, I reckon, that he was going to destroy the earth. So he calls one man out. And this is a bit of a, a foreshadow, if you like, of the, the coming priesthood. He starts to work with one person. Now, I'm not going to go into all the points because we're going to do it over the coming years. But you can read all the way down to about point 23, where the, the Old Testament closes with the book of Malachi. I don't know if you follow... American politics, but every year in the States, they have a, 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 a statement by the president. It's called the State of the Nation Address. And that happens each year. And each year he comes out and he will tell the nation where we're at. That's what the book of Malachi is. The book of Malachi is the closing of an era. In fact, turn to it. Look at this. This is another heartbreaking one. Malachi chapter 1. God's just about to, to go quiet. <laughs> For 400 years. Now, those of you who are married will know that sometimes husbands can go quiet on you. Amen? <laughs> sometimes wives can go quiet on you. You're all very quiet. <laughs> right? Well, listen, folks. God went quiet. For how long? 400 years. That's a long one. <laughs> Amen? Anyway. <laughs> Malachi chapter 1. I want to ask the question this morning. Why did God go quiet? You hearing from God? Don't answer that, please. When was the last word you had from God? God's a loving God. He's a God of communication. All the time. When was the last word? Silence is not a good sign. Not a good sign. It always bothers me when people chase me saying, have you got a word for me? Have you got a word for me? Get your own word. Do I, God not talking to you or what? You're not talking to God? What's going on here? What's the book of Malachi about? The book of Malachi is about all this. I made you and I loved you and I love you still. But I am a holy God and I am vexed that I had to flood the earth and I gave you another chance. I couldn't work with you anymore so I separated Abraham and I started to work with him alone lest I destroy you. But look at what you've done, Israel. Over and over I was patient and patient and patient, but you consistently rebelled against me. And then he closes the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 1 and verse 6. Malachi chapter 1 verse 6, and he says this, 
A son honors his father, and a servant honors his master. If I am a father, then where is the honor that's due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect that's due to me, says the Lord Almighty? But you priests, you show contempt for my name. And you can finish the book. Listen, folks, look at me a minute. It's heartbreaking. Finish the book. Do you know what? God stopped speaking for 400 years, like he turned and said, I've had enough. And he left them with total silence. And no doubt they cried out. No doubt the prophets sought. But there was no words from God. It's a blank period. I want you to understand something. Why did God stop speaking? Answer? Because the people who had been in church a long time had lost respect for him. They no longer honored him. He became commonplace. So they disrespected him, took him casually, overly familiar. You see? Sad. And with, he, he tried every way through love, through fear, through all sorts of things, to, 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 to put that respect back for him in them. But they just couldn't do it. They got stuck. And to put it bluntly, the nation of Israel just refused to grow up. They wanted to remain children, like Peter Pan. They wanted to remain eternal children. You know your life and my life, everybody's life, the Jews, the life of the Jewish people. Three phases. Phase one was the law. They were told what to do. Get up, go to church, go to prayer meeting, get the cell group. They were told what to do. There's books and books giving them instructions. But it, God doesn't want to stay there. You're not a child. Are you? Are you? Do you still need to be told? God wanted them to move on to the second phase, which is when they want to do it. I want to come and worship God. I want to lead my family so that they can see I'm a praying father. I'm a praying husband. As for me and my household, my household will know that we serve the Lord. Amen. I want you to do it because you want to. But you know what? Israel wouldn't do anything because they wanted to. Nothing. They were childish and they got stuck. Phase one, we've all been children. And I treat children like children. Any good father would treat children like children because they're children. Don't rob a child of its childhood. Let the child run around or whatever. But I tell you what, a good father will never treat an adult like a child, will he? No. And you have, you've had a history. You began here. But God's intention was that you move on to becoming an adult, a mature person who does things because they want to. Now, if you fulfill this part, the last part is the exciting part. It's where we send people out, right? This is also church planting. Churches just like this one. You have the told to, Winston and Eunice. You have the mummy-daddy phase. And that's perfectly good. That's right. That's fitting. But you can't stay there forever. Hello. You've got to do things because you want to do things. Amen. Amen. 
You've got to do things because you love the Lord. Because you want to serve the Lord. You want to lead your home and lead your family because you're an adult now. Israel couldn't cope with that. And if they weren't told, you see, parts of Asia have a real problem with this. I'm telling you, I've had many, you know, discussions on this, on the development of churches, because it, it can be quite authoritative in that region in comparison to the West. And people get used to one form of strict government, and then they can't build a relationship with God, and the churches we plant become very strict, harsh, and unattractive. And as I say, I've had closed-door meetings with my overseers, and they're saying, how come Glasgow's growing? It's the only church in Europe that's growing. We have 25 other churches stuck at 20. I said, because you're still telling them what to do. It's like a school. Let them grow up. Let them start to mature. Be silent. Stop speaking. Stop speaking to them. And let them find themselves. Remove the restrictions, the law. Remove the law. And let them actually find how immature they are or how mature they are. How on earth can we plant churches if we don't even know you? I want to know what you're like. I want to know if you will actually get up and be here in time to worship God. I want to know if you'll lead your family to prayer or if you'll lie down with the remote and watch telly. I want to know what you're like and how can I know you? How can I trust you to send you to plant churches out of this place if, if you're under law all the time? Because all you'll do is replicate that. Amen. Gone very quiet in here. All you will do is replicate more law. And that's ugly and horrible. It doesn't produce anything. You may be asleep, friends, but I tell you the kingdom is not. You've got no idea what's happening around you. <laughs> I'm in conversation right here with six or seven people to plant churches in different countries. People who want to. Right? People who we see consistency in because they love God. Not because they're told. Hallelujah. Don't sleep. The kingdom never sleeps. It's always working. Don't be fooled. Just because God's quiet, just because I'm quiet, doesn't mean I'm not doing anything. You have your chance. God's way of bringing those people to maturity was to stop talking to them for 400 years. He cut them off and left them in silence so that they could find themselves, discover who they really were, and then all the time, what was he doing? He was planning their redemption because he's a good God. He was planning Jesus Christ. And after that silent period, when they actually found him, a bit like Nebuchadnezzar, there's examples of this all over the place where he sent him off to eat grass. I don't recommend it, but you know what I mean. He sent him off to find himself. And then he was able to use him. Amen? And that's what's happening in this Old Testament and the transition to the new. And it's the same for us. God doesn't want you to remain a child. In fact, folks, I'll tell you this. <laughs> You're going to have a long wait. Because I promise you this one thing. There was a time in your life when God dealt with you like a child. But once you become a man, you're a bar mitzvah, if you like, in Jewish terms. He will never, ever approach you the same way. Your days, when I was a child, I talked like a child, acted like a child, but those days are gone. 
And he is an excellent father who leaves you and demands of you higher standards and waits and he will not, either you will never be engaged in the kingdom because he will not come and get you. It's a prodigal son situation. Remember, the father did not go and get the prodigal son. Did he? What sort of father is he? A good father. A father who knows this child must grow. This child must not be told what to do, but they must want to come home. They must want to serve in the home. And this is, you see, it's relevant. You must be joking. It's extremely relevant for our day and for you and for me to grow up. So that's an overview of the Old Testament, which we will look at in days to come. Um, if you turn over, you, you'll have another sheet on your seat, which is marked um, historical overview of our ch- church history. Church history overview. This is a little bit more complicated, but it'll at least it will show you the picture on the box, if you like. When you study church history, generally speaking, it's divided into periods or eras or epochs or time frames, whatever you want to call it. And I've just given you about seven or eight of them here, and that basically puts me in the picture. It helps me to understand what's happening. I'll just go through them quite quickly. It doesn't take that much time. When you, if you ever do study church history, you'll see that the first age is called the apostolic age. And that refers to the era from about 30 to about the year 100. God had sent Jesus Christ into the world, and Jesus was born at such a... Could I have my map up? Such a strategic... Yeah, the real one. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Jesus was born at such a strategic point in Israel because the then world, that was the trading point. So everybody was coming and going. The seafarers were coming and going. And into that place, Jesus was born. Now, folks, (laughs) the apostolic age from 30 to 100, it's a scary time. I was talking to Pastor Johan yesterday. I don't think many of you realize the history of the Eritrean church. I get criticized sometimes for bringing in so many churches. Anybody who criticizes, you you haven't got a clue. God help you if you ever criticize. Pastor Johann was going to be shot. And so was his fellow pastor in Paris. We were just talking about this morning. All right? You've got no idea what's going on. I'm going to finish with it at the end. I'll show you what's happening in parts of the world. He and his wife were sentenced to death because they had a Bible, etc., etc. But if you I mean our days are getting increasingly bad, it's getting worse. And, and that's what it was like at the time of Jesus. After Jesus had died, the persecutions in the early centuries, it's, it's beyond words. Some things you don't speak. Some things you don't say. I had a friend. He was a lecturer in, in Cardiff Uni, and I got friendly with him. He had access to the, the church history library, which you're not allowed into. And I, I said, I want to go in. I want to you know, get me in. And he, he got me into the place, and I was left alone there for a morning. Jesus. I tell you, friends, God forgive us for being apathetic about the kingdom. You pick off books that you'll never buy in a shop. And they're early church writings, you see. They're, they're copies of the manuscripts held around the world. And you look and you read. And I never forgot one, script, one little script I read that was the inscription of a catacomb, you know, on the bottom of the uh, Colosseum. And it was a man and his family. And he'd written on the wall, um, I, I, I praise God because tomorrow myself, my wife, and my children will go to the lion's. For the glory of God. Not a word, a nasty word. 
I didn't buy into this. But these centuries, those, the, 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 particularly the first 130 years, were absolutely horrific. Things got better quite quickly. That's the apostolic age. We'll maybe look at it in detail at some time. The second era, say approximately the year 100 to 200, the church had many cults, just like we have today. There's nothing new under the sun. The, the, the same cults that you guys deal with, Noman, Gordon, Donya, the, it's the same thing. It's just got a different name. Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or any, it's all the same thing. It just goes round and round. Islam is Baal, right? Islam is Baal worship. It's the same demon. It's the same thing. It's the moon god. It's the same thing. It just goes by different names in different generations. And if you studied that era, you, it gives you a lot of confidence in the gospel you preach because you suddenly realize, wow, behind these representations, you have the same evil spirits in all these different generations. The church began to get itself sorted out from 180 to 250. Things got better. There's still no New Testament established, obviously, because of what I shared at the beginning. But you're beginning to get a, a handle on the Bible. Now, very often I get asked, well, what's the difference between a Catholic Bible? This is a Catholic Bible. What's the difference between a Catholic Bible and a Protestant, if I can use that word? Alex, don't, don't, don't like that word. <laughs> but what's the difference between a Catholic Bible and your Bible? Answer, 16 books more in the Catholic one. There's quite a bit of a difference there, right? This is, this is a Catholic one. And the reason for that was the, the, during the Reformation that a guy called Martin Luther came along. We'll see him in a moment. <laughs> and and, and, and he, he started to, to actually see. In fact, I'll, I'll finish. I'll, I'll, deal, I'll, deal, I'll deal with that when I get to it. Let me just go through 250 to 350 there on your notes. After the period of persecution that existed for about 150 years, it was severe. Then from 250 to 350, the, the, it's the era of Constantine the Great, if you like, and things got a lot better in the kingdom at that time. If, if you were a Catholic, put your hand up. Any Catholics here? Oh, not many, I'm surprised. If you, have you ever seen this sign on a Catholic priest's vestments or on the banners in the church or normally hanging over the altar? This comes all the way from Constantine. Uh, could I have my picture up there of the, the soldiers in battle? This is a famous painting in Sistine Chapel of Constantine. He was a Roman emperor, and it was one of the first times that the church got favor. Jesus had been crucified, resurrected, we'd had all the persecutions, and the church was scattered, beginning to get some letters together, beginning to get its act together. Constantine was a Roman emperor, slaughtering Jews like any, uh, slaughtering Christians like anybody else. And one day he goes out into battle. This is what church history records, right? One day Constantine's riding out into battle, and he looks up in the sky, and this is what he sees. He sees this flaming, he takes it. He believes he sees a cross, which is also a sword. And he believes that it was God speaking to him. And it was not just any God. It was the God of the Christians, whose sign and symbol was a cross. And he heard a voice speaking down from the heavens, which said this, In this sign ye will conquer. <gasps> and history has it that Constantine, the Roman emperor, became a Christian. And from that point on, the whole church changed. Everything changed. He gave tax exemption to the clergy. He established churches. He built buildings for the Christians all over the emperor, all over the empire. But if you follow through that time, and there's a lot written about Constantine, one of the things that, by the time it's over, 
Have you ever wondered why when you go into a church, there's candles? Or when you go into a church, the priest has got vestments. Do you ever wonder why? This is him. This is where it came from. He was the one. He introduced it. The church looked like us. They were ordinary people, ordinary Christians from every walk of life. But Constantine loved the pomp and circumstance, a bit like the royal wedding the other day. (laughs) That was very good. He loved all that. So he introduced candles, vestments, stately buildings, ornate buildings. This is where it came from, and it came down through the years. You'll hear many different stories about him, both good and bad. But this was definitely a time, in my opinion, the outcome, good and bad. Because by the time he finished with the church, the church had lost its fire completely. All the evangelism, if you like, the mission-mindedness had gone, and they had become very staid in their ways. The persecution was no longer there. Persecution has been a spur for the church, actually, in all generations. I'm sorry to say that, but it's true, right? And by the time Constantine finished with the church, it didn't look anything like it had when he got it, (laughs) when he started. It kind of killed the fire. But there were many good things, too. There was a lot of establishment. From 325 to 500, there's the era of the, of the councils when things are starting being pulled together in church history. And then we approach the biggest era of all, and that's the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages really dates from the fall of Rome or the birth of the Catholic Church, whatever you want, whichever you want. Rome fell in 410. The Catholic Church was formed in 590. Look at me a moment. The Middle Ages, the birth of the Catholic Church to Martin Luther, 1515 from about 590 to 1515. This is the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, we call it. Dark because there was no Bible. That's why it's dark. Because the church had taken the Bible. There was a Bible, but the church had taken it away from the people and hidden it from the people. It was only the possession of the hierarchy, the clergy, the the papacy, particularly we'll come to in a moment, in those days. And they were dark days, terrible, terrible times. The Roman Catholic Church is, you know what the word Catholic means? Universal. Universal. And the the Christians at that time, you could quite rightly call yourself a Catholic, if you like. It's the Roman bit that makes the difference. The the known church at that time was, the, the church had been scattered, Constantine gave favor, and as the church began to get itself together and be given great favor, they built great buildings in Rome, still there today and in North Africa, Alexandria, and in Ephesus, and in Constantinople, and in Greece, in Antioch. There were five big Christian centers in the known world. And what began to happen over time is a man called Gregory the Great became the Pope of Rome. Every city had a Pope. Every one of these Christian centers had a bishop or a Pope. It's the same word. When Gregory the Great came to the throne, to become the bishop of Rome in 590, do you know what he thought? He thought, wouldn't it be great if the whole world was under our control? (laughs) But if a, you know, James Bond, the world is not enough freak, you know? So he, he, um, he sends out an edict and he says to all these other four principal sees, it's the, the bishops would gather everybody under their authority and see them. So it was the bishop's see. And he gathered all of these main leaders to Rome and he said, listen guys, what we're going to do is we're going to have one church and I'm going to be the leader. And they say, well, why? And he says, well, because Peter and Paul died here 
And Peter was given the key to the kingdom, and for this reason, you should all come under Rome. Well, all four cities thought otherwise. And there was what, what, what is termed the Great Schism. The church split. And these guys went off and formed Eastern Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, and many other forms of Christianity. And in there is you and I. In there somewhere is a golden thread of our type of church, Pentecostals. But Rome did, he did what he said he was going to do. He formed his own base in the Vatican City, which is still there today. So Gregory the Great was, was in some ways a very good guy in that he was missions-minded and everything. But nonetheless, he turned this whole thing over around about the year 590. So if someone says to you, look at me a moment, really important. Someone says to you, I'm a Catholic, and we date our church back to Peter. You say, no, you don't. No, you don't. The Catholic Church was formed in the year 590, the Roman Catholic Church. Now, my brother's a doctor of moral theology. He lectures in the Vatican, right? And I was driving with him one day, and I said to him, you know what, Martin? <laughs> so many people say to me that, 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 that the Catholic Church has its roots with Peter. But it's not true. The Catholic Church was formed by Gregory, right? And he's a good man. He said, yeah, right. It's just common belief. You see, these things help us. They help us see the big picture. They help us get a ground of where we... Do you know where we come from, Peter? We're the Pentecostal church, right? We're the Acts church. This is our history. Don't let the devil steal it on you or confuse it on you. Gregory had many different perspectives, which he sort of amalgamated. Uh, there's a pile of notes there. Don't take them now. But at the end of this meeting, if you want more detail, that's a chapter from a, a forthcoming book on church history. You can take that. There's only about 20 copies there. If there's none left, you can, I'll print more. Gregory, Gregory was good in many ways, but through this time, he incorporated things that had no place in the Christian church and the Christian thinking, such as the fact that the bread and wine turned into the body and blood of Jesus. That has no place in our history, such as praying to the dead. Look at me a minute. If you tell a Jew to pray to the dead, they're going to run away from you. They're going to think you're crazy. Now, you see, they say, well, why isn't it mentioned in the New Testament? Because they were Jews. You didn't need to tell them not to pray to the dead. They wouldn't. They're not cannibals either. They wouldn't eat that. Blood and things were never... So you don't see it covered because it didn't need to be covered. This was a later addition. And I've given you the dates, actually. The dates are on those sheets. Listen to this. In the year 831, transubstantiation... The belief that the bread and wine get transformed into the body and blood of Jesus became official doctrine, okay? In the year 1439, purgatory, the fact that when you die, there was a place you could go to pay for your sins. You can't pay for your sins, friends. 1439, before that was adopted as an article of faith by the Roman Catholic Church. Prayers for the dead, it was adopted in 787. And on and on I go. Praying to the dead, 431, many years after the, the early church had sent out their truths. So, once again, it's important for us to know these things because they do affect us. That's the Middle Ages. The Reformation, if I could have Martin Luther up there, please. The Reformation 
was a, 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 a huge time period. This is Martin Luther. He was a Roman Catholic monk. Martin Luther, look up here. Martin Luther was given one of these. Not this. Martin Luther was given a Bible. Not a Catholic Bible, a Bible. And he read it. And he read the book of Romans. He wasn't allowed a Bible, even though he was a Catholic monk. It was a bishop friend of his that slipped one in. <laughs> it's crazy times. Gave him a Bible. And he started reading it. And he read in the book of Romans how salvation was by grace through faith. And he suddenly realized how far off the truth the Roman Catholic Church, this is the 1500s, had become. So he was a bit of a genius. He found 95 errors in Roman Catholic theology. So he went out and he, 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 I mean, he risked his life. He lived on, you know, tender hooks. They were trying to kill him for many years. He had a group of around 200 bodyguards with him permanently. It was a group of people called the humanists who believed in his cause. He wrote 95 different points of theology that were missing, that were in the Bible, that were practices, praying to the dead, etc. And he, he, he couldn't find them in the Bible. This is called the 95 Thesis. He nailed them to the door of a church in Wittenberg. And he had to flee because there was a, a contract, <laughs> a contract out on him. Now, listen, folks, the people knew he was right. This is, again, the era of the papacy, which was very bad. You know, Caesar and Lucretia Borgia, you may have seen the films on those. This was a bad era for the Roman Catholic Church. It's a much better era now. But during this time, out he went. The bulk of the people knew he was right, and they started to follow him. And this gave birth to what we call the Reformation, the changing of the church, or the, you know, it's a revival by any other name. Now, he left the Catholic Church with a problem. Martin Luther has just proved that there's no praying to the dead in here, there's no transubstantiation here, so the Catholic Church had a problem. And do you know what it was? They needed to find other manuscripts that would back up their practices. So this is a Catholic Bible. Sixteen extra books were added. In the year 1537, it's a, a council called the Council of Trent. They added, called the Apocrypha, they added 15 books to your Bible. So that's why their Bible is bigger than yours, because they had to give an answer to the complaints of Martin Luther and the Reformation gang, followed by John Calvin, etc. Okay? So you will hear people say, you know, why is my Bible different from yours? That's why. They were added in 1537. You move on. I, I have to move quickly because I, I'm actually due somewhere else in a moment. The Reformation in England, the next time period, I'm, we're not going to look at it today, but the gospel continued to go west and west and west. And you know the story of Henry here when he started cutting his wife's heads off, etc., etc. And we have, you know, the, the, the birth of the Anglican Church within the United Kingdom. Fascinating story. It's in the, the notes there if you want to go through that in any detail. We come up to the 18th century and we're getting to our back door. The, the, the church continues to move west. You have the developments with America, with the gospel going there. You've got various revivals coming up to the evangelical revival in 1600s, 1700s. And you begin to see some famous names like Griffith Jones, Daniel Rollins, Charles Wesley, etc., etc. Could I have... Uh, Charles up there. <laughs> Here's Charles Wesley. Take a look at this. This is particularly poignant for the street guys. Look at this. What, a, what an era. What an era. 
about 15 years ago, they sent me to Poland to teach street preaching. And I was used to this country. But I go into Poland, you, you stand up on the street and you start to preach. Guess what? Everybody comes. Everybody comes. The whole street stops. They come, they lock up their shops, they come out, they're there for the day. They don't move. I was gobsmacked. I couldn't believe it. Different country. Different country. Different mindset. Right? It's actually, in those days, Poland is now a very modern country. But back then, it hadn't quite caught the wave yet. And, and, and pe you know, people were thinking very differently. You see these days, when John Wesley was out preaching, you know that crowd there? Do you know what they believe? They believe in the Bible. 75, 85% of those people in the crowd go to church on Sunday. It's a church-going nation. They all go. It's what we do. It's a Bible-believing nation. So Charles Wesley could stand up and he could talk about the Word of God and argue about the difference in this and this. And the people would stay. And the people would listen. And they would debate with him. Now, I want you to notice one thing. Our hearts are the same as Wesley's. It's the crowd that's changed. The crowd is not, yes, Father, no, Father, three bags full, Father. No, no. Those days are over. Now you have a crowd that says, who are you? Who are you? Bible? What Bible? What are you talking about? There is no basis. There is no common ground. So when we look at this scenario, we can think that we can replicate it. But the statistics prove otherwise. 77% of people saved today are saved through personal one-to-one -one relationships. Because they don't want to hear what you've got to say as much in our generation. They want to know who you are. And that's what's converting people. It's a statistical fact. Now, of course, we still preach, amen. I just want you to understand the nature of the people you're speaking to is dramatically different. We don't have the common ground. There's been a lot of bad press. And so they prejudice us, prejudge us before we open our mouths. So as much as, yes, we do our evangelism, we need to be conscious of what's effective. Because the goal is not street preaching. The goal is soul winning. Amen? There's a difference. There's a big difference. It's not so that you can preach. Amen? It's so that people will be saved. I trust that is your goal. It needs to be the goal. Because there are two very different goals and two very different motivations in many young men and young women. And if we truly want to see souls saved, we will be interested in how people get saved, and that's what we'll do. Fair enough? So you need to understand this era. This was a cracking era, a fantastic era. And it brings us right up to, again, today, the 19th century, the 21st century. Things changed. There was revivals in different parts of the world that have been fantastic. Um, there's a message on End Times on our website you can look at if you, if you want, and that will take you around the globe with the, 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 the track the gospel has taken. And the reason you see all this trouble. All right, I know that's a lot of information for one day. Amen. But it's the box. That's what it is. It's the box. It's what's happened from Genesis right up until tonight, today, this morning. Okay? It's the, it's the whole picture. And over the weeks and months and years to come, we'll fill in the gaps bit by bit. Can I invite the worship team back? And 
And could you stand and pray with me for the peace of Israel? Hallelujah. Just focus the power of your prayer and your faith on the times in which we live. And God Almighty, I thank you that we can see that we're not blind. We can see the days in which we live. We can see the hour in which we live. And you have trusted me. You have trusted every person here, all those listening at home, to be alive at this time. And I pray that we would not be idle, but that we would be very productive. And right now we concentrate our effort and our prayer on Israel. Would you protect the nation of Israel? And God, I ask your forgiveness for the hatred of the very nation through which you came. I pray for salvation to be poured out upon that nation, that people will find you, Jew after Jew, 12,000 per month return home. God, would you save them? Would you turn them to you and let them be saved? And just keep your heads bowed. I want to give an opportunity for anybody here who's not saved to give your life to Jesus Christ. In light of what we've just shared, I guess you can see the urgency of the hour in which we live. If you want to repent of your sins this morning and give your life to Christ, then just raise your hand, put it back down, and I'll come and speak with you at the end of this time. I'll just give you a moment to respond.